Welcome to MMO, the Mike Mike and Oscar show. They cover films then, win the gold, but now we're talking picks up films for all of these shows. From Toy Story 1 up through Toy Story 4, this is the MMO, the Pixar Rewatch Show. You know the intro by now, and we're back. Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar covering the Pixar series rewatch. I don't know what episode this is of ours. Three? We have way too many series and big things going on. Right. That for me to keep track of. But this is another entry into the Pixar series rewatch. We are covering technically the Incredibles movies as a whole today, except that we already did a lot with the Incredibles 2 in last year's Oscar Sprint Profile, doing our regular Oscars and Academy Award work. So... Mike's going to have to fill you in a little bit about that and why we're only concentrating on Incredibles 1 today, but I am your co-host, Mike 1. This is co-host Also Mike. Also Mike, we're one of the few pods in the known world that did like the deepest of deep dives on, <laughs> on The Incredibles 2. It was one of our favorite movies from last year, and we did an Oscar sprint profile on it. We did a category overview of the best animated feature category at the Oscars, yes. all, the, all those nominations, and we talked about it like 10 different times. So what I'm going to do is going to put that OSP on our Pixar playlist, and we'll make allusions to Incredibles 2 today, but we're going to focus on Incredibles 1. Yes, and that's going to be the crux and the main portion of this. So for this Pixar series rewatch, technically covering the Incredibles, mostly just focusing on Incredibles 1. You'll have some Incredibles 2 stuff sprinkled in there. But if you have not joined us yet for any of the Pixar series rewatch, uh, what you want to know about these is that they, they're similar to our Oscar sprint profiles and that we have a non-spoiler half and a spoiler-filled half. The non-spoiler half, though, we go mostly... Uh, you get the cast and crew, you get the regular box office stuff, but the biggest portion that makes it stick out is that we're going over the history of the Pixar company. Right. Every one of these movies, we will give you a snap snapshot of where the company of Pixar is in their growth and at what these a points. company what a company <laughs> yeah they've done okay for themselves over the years they make me envious all their you know behind the scenes footage oh my god i want to <laughs> just let me just work as anything it's, i'll work i'll i'll Take out the garbage. It's people. Well, you can't take. They have to have robots by now doing. They that have robots. Yeah. They have Wally <laughs> taking out the garbage. It, I will assist Wally. <laughs> I will polish Wally. The robot. You're under Wally. I'm under Wally. <laughs> uh, they are people that are infinitely more talented than any of us could ever hope to be at anything else. But they will have a spoiler warning to let you know that the spoiler section is coming. When we do the spoiler section for these Pixar rewatch episodes, we try to get into like the emotional investment of it. We yeah. go by the 22 rules of Pixar screenwriting success that Mike has been going through. Every movie coming out with one different rule that has been well known around these screenwriting circles. And, and this one will classes. have two rules because we're taking into consideration both movies. Right. And we also get into what made us all mushy and sobby and heartfelt and feeling good. Mm-hmm. What made us swallow our happy pills with all these movies. What we liked, disliked, etc., etc. That's all in the spoiler section. So if you've not seen The Incredibles yet, either one of them, do not worry. This is all non-spoiler for this half coming forward. And how we start the non-spoiler section for both the Oscar Sprint Profile episodes we do and these Pixar series rewatch episodes is Mike's going to go through the cast and crew. Yeah, real quick, written and directed by Brad Bird. Who? Brad Bird. Mm-hmm. I want to go on the Peter Griffin rant with the bird as <laughs> the word, but I'm not going to do it because I know I thought it's... you were going to say like cousin of Larry. Yeah, yeah, that's terrible. That's even worse. Brad Bird helmed the Iron Giant, Ratatouille, Mission Impossible, Gro- Ghost... I want to say Gross Protocol <laughs> every time. It's Ghost Protocol. One of those movies is not like the other. Correct. Yep. And, uh, of course, Incredibles 2. Uh, he also wrote and wrote and directed the flop that was Tomorrowland. I did not see that, Mike. Did you see that? No, not no. at all. I had I no interest. Need... It didn't, yeah, did nothing for me. Uh, but he was redeemed, of course, with last year's Incredibles 2. He's got a magic pen. He can make some money. Yes, sir. Greg T. Greg. T. Nelson. You're hitting it today. Mike is getting sick to where I'm coming out of my illness. I'm just going to be like, (laughs) I'm just going to stop saying words. It's just going to be just blowing into a The rest of the episode. Craig T. Nelson. I've heard of him. From Coach, from Poltergeist. And of course, the Family Stone. <laughs> I Michael. hated that movie. Me too. Oh my god! <laughs> I remember too. seeing that movie, and for the last half hour of it, it was me and two other friends in an empty theater, just screaming that it should have been renamed the Kidney Stone <laughs> to the screen. Good. Yeah. They, isn't one of the Wilsons in that movie? And aren't there yeah. like four Wilson brothers who act? And why can't they be the brothers? Like, why does one Wilson brother in there? And I know what it was, all those other brothers look like. Anyway, this is a Pixar pod. We are the only two 
30-something-year-old men that have seen that movie. I ha- We have to be. Oh, it's blockbuster video. Gosh <laughs> darn it. I had the subscription package, Michael. Blockbuster. Anyway, we have Holly Hunter from Broadcast News and The Big Thick. Um, she plays <laughs> Elastigirl. Samuel L. Jackson from all of Mike One's Guess the Plots. Yeah. Plays Fro- Frozone. <laughs> Jason Lee. Where's my super suit, woman? Jason Lee from Mallrats' Syndrome. Great voice acting by Jason Lee in this. Where's he gone? I feel like he's dropped off the map. He should do more voice acting because this was terrific. This is a unique voice he has. We, we might be on the verge of a Jason Lee Asans, though, with the James Silent Bob reboot coming up I and all that, that stuff. So it's he could be coming the, back in our... Uh, subtitled Reboot, right? Is it? I didn't even know that. That'd be hilarious. The Reboot, <laughs> so that's pretty good. Uh, but we also have... Pixar go-to voicers, John Ratzenberg. He's the pig from Toy Story. Yes. Ratzenberg. He's the mustache from Cheers. And, of course, uh, he's the underminer at the end of this. <laughs> and of Wallace Shawn is the T-Rex from Toy Story. Yes. And he is the boss, the tiny little boss, Gilbert, Gilbert Humph. Yeah, which is great to get those guys in there. John Ratzenberg, you would have thought that she, If you would have asked John Ratzenberg what is the highlight of his career, is it even Cheers anymore? Or is it being in every single one of the every Pixar single movies? Toy Story? I wonder what Wallace Shawn's resume looks like. I wonder if he's done them all. We'll have by the end of the Pixar yeah. rewatch. We'll have some stats for you, right? And we'll let you know. But Mike, you got the history of the Pixar company. So look, the, we, we squeezed this episode in because we thought we were going to have our Endgame review today. We don't have that. We're waiting one more day on that. That's fine. Uh, the reason we were had this one kind of batting around is that one, we've already done the Incredibles too, and two, what worked out for us in having this is that it's an easy enough. It's just one movie to review. Uh, this actually just also happens to have, at least from what I could find in research, right. one of the easier backstories with the Pixar company because we're still a standalone company. We're not por- purchased by Disney yet. And the, the whole inception of the Incredibles movie is really a passion project of the mind and from the mind of Brad Bird. What's really cool about this is so th- they're friends in college, Lasseter and John Brad Lasseter Bird. and Brad Bird, yeah. And Brad Bird's coming into that core group at Pixar very early in the process with Toy Story while they're a graphics company. And he knows very early on, I want to make animated films using this technology. He is shouting that from the rooftops. You wonder if Lasseter kind of took a lot of his confidence in making animated films from college buddy Brad Bird. And it was weird because at the time, it's like he was too gung-ho about it. Yeah. For them, like, to make money. And Jobs is, like, the alpha in any room. Of course. <laughs> and they just, like, he, he couldn't, they couldn't coexist, really. Well, they, he still got a lot of leeway, at least in what I read, in that Brad Bird, he was the first, uh, he's the first Pixar movie that has one name in the story and screenplay credit. That's yeah. the first time this happened with Pixar. And it's this movie because it's Brad Bird's. He started working on this movie. He had the idea of it some time back in the, in the 90s, they were saying, and how he wanted to reflect all the those uh, cartoons he had growing up, all the spy movies and shows he saw growing up. So that was kind of the aesthetic he was playing with. This was the first Pixar movie to feature human characters as main characters. This was the first Pixar movie, like I said, to have one writer, uh, one mastermind behind the helm. An auteur, essentially. Yeah, and they also were at the disadvantage that he wasn't working in lockstep with the capabilities and the technology that Pixar knew they could do. Mm -hmm. It was more of a piecemeal Brad Bird would write the thing Presented to Pixar, and they would say, okay, this is what we can do with this, and make your screen look like this, and these are the shots that you're going to get out of this, and if you need to rewrite it along the way, we'll go back and forth like that. So it really wasn't, every time we've done this Pixar history thing, we've talked about how it's been this very group effort. Everyone writing on each other's scripts and making changes and this helping is one another. This is more the quote-unquote assembly line in many yeah. ways. This is more the corporate from the top yeah. down kind of movie. And that's, yeah, you're right. It's it's fascinating how they, you know, took an auteur, took somebody who's such a powerful voice in cinema after the Iron Giant, which everybody at Pixar loved and respected, even though it was Huge critical a, hit, but huge financial flop. So they knew they had a kindred spirit in Brad Bird. That's what I think is cool about this, because Lasseter is in charge of that story department. He knew Brad enough where he's like, all right, I can trust this guy. I I know what he's made of, and I, I know what he can do, and... Don't quit the game, Brad Bird. And that's that's the most fascinating part Join to me. Us. Brad yeah. Bird, apparently after the Iron Giant flopped financially, despite all the rave reviews it got, and it has become a cult classic today. I mean, there's people that swear by it as their favorite movie. After that happened, Brad Bird apparently was ready to leave 
movie making because right. he he was this high strung individual he was very the overlord type that needed his hand in every pot and very at times maybe difficult to work with if things weren't going his way and so it seems like John at least from what I read and how how it was framed to me and sounded to me it seemed like John Lasseter kind of threw a lifeboat out to his buddy that he knew from years ago and said yep. let's bring in let's see if we can do something to this what's your biggest pat what's the number one movie you want to get made that you think we can do and let's see if we can do it and it turned out to be the Incredibles and it was uh, the, the incredible, <laughs> and, and it's cool because once he establishes himself at Pixar, he's back uh, three years later with Ratatouille, yep. and then he gets a lot of leeway to to go out on his own and come back for Incredibles too. So it, it's really cool how that that relationship w- w- has been held strong for for years. It really years. is fascinating too when we do these history of Pixar snippets that we keep going back and looking through time, and this is just it's this is barely a Pixar movie, right? Mm-hmm. It's only a Pixar movie in as far as John Lasseter kind of got the ball rolling. Yeah. Other I, than that, this is a Brad Bird movie. They kind of had that assembly line going where it was every couple of years, right? They they went 95 to 98 for Toy Story to A Bug's Life. Yeah, they kind of staggered it where Toy Story 2 was coming out in 99. And they were able to use the people they had uh, to get Toy Story 2. Then they kind of staggered it where two years from then Monsters, Inc. happened. Two years Finding Nemo. And they wanted to make sh- films in a shorter area time and it, this is big in the pixar books where jobs is like we gotta get and the cfo who wrote there's the book, money to be made damn there's it money to be made. <laughs> we have this established brand finding nemo's yet another huge hit monsters inc was a huge hit toy story 2 huge hit so they kind of knew at the late 90s there let's get Brad, let's get somebody else involved who can kind of handle the load himself with his group, and we'll use all our powers that we have in house to help him, and we'll give him some, uh, you know, manpower there. But bottom line is, Brad Bird can at least take take charge because he proved it with Iron Giant. And, that's, and in two thousand and three, you have Nemo. In two thousand and four, Mike, you have Incredible. The Iron Giant part of it to me is really interesting because, you know, Pixar was a company. That needed a hit. They, right. they needed a release date, first of all. We talked about that in the first Toy Story. Once they got that, they were so financially successful, they, they just they didn't need a hit in the sense that, you know, they were going to be doing any damage if they actually made a picture that lost money. But this is only their sixth film. They're still trying to... They're not the massive industry giant yet that would force Disney to pay out $7 billion to acquire them sure. in just a couple years, right? And especially knowing that they're going back and forth in these pseudo-legal discussions with Disney about these contracts and about what is... Disney does have the rights to and what they don't. They know they can't afford to take a step back. So I wonder just personally how much of the love for the Iron Giant people like John Lasseter have that made them comfortable enough to know that they can trust Brad Bird with his property versus the history between Lasseter and Bird on a personal level. You know, does that make sense? Like how much would they trust him as a filmmaker already versus how much of it was John Lasseter saying, he's my guy, I can vouch for him. And he, they know he's a slave to story, and they know his his process is what I think they were comfortable with. So in a way, for them to quote-unquote outsource for someone who's not in that core group of guys who are the founding fathers, this is one of the first non-founding fathers yeah. to do a movie, but it just makes sense to me because it's the first time where they made a movie from one year to the next. They didn't have a two-year gap or a three-year gap. It's 03, right. and then point. it's 04. Now, Cars comes in 06, because they're looking at a major gap, right? So they're looking at Finding Nemo 03, and then Lasseter is doing a passion project with Cars. So they have nothing in between, so they were smart enough to plan ahead. And then, of course, Brad Bird's able to turn around Ratatouille fast after Cars. So right from 2006, Mike... We had basically a film every single year for Pixar until 2013 to 2015. We had a gap between Monsters University and, because the good dinosaur was having problems. So you have Inside Out and the good dinosaur. <laughs> Only took them until their 18th try. Right. They both come out in the year 2015. I think the good dinosaur was supposed to come out in 2014, but we'll we'll have more yeah, information. Yeah, we got I remember hearing something about that wasn't even supposed Yeah, there's something that happened with the good dinosaur. I'm, I'm it's just jiggling around in my mind, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Um but that's pretty much the backstory. Pixar once again working its way and and Cars is the big turning point. Cars is one of the big uh when Pixar had to renegotiate deals with Disney, yes. when Pixar was going to be acquired by Disney, that's kind of where everything changed in this dynamic. This is one of the, the Incredibles one is one of the last movies where this is still Pixar working as basically a, 
conduit of Disney's. Not quite acquired by them yet. And we'll catch you up. We'll go back to Finding Nemo, Finding Dory at some point. We'll, and like you said, we'll go back to Cars at some point with those stories. A couple production nuggets here, Mike. You know, Brad Bird often talks about, in the making of featurettes, two necessities for every scene. And I just thought this was fascinating. And he talked about it in Incredibles 2 for the lead-up in that as well. He talked about a balance in every scene between the mundane and the fantastic. That's the contrast he wanted to strike. That's the conflict he wanted to have. There's mundane. Mundane. That's amazing. And fantastic. That really and the is. mundane needs to be funny. And you know, or the contrast is funny at the end of the day, or the mundane could just be funny and relatable. And then the fantastic's gotta be something cool. I'll sit on it for now without giving away spoilers, but I didn't know this because I didn't read your copy. I'm a bad person. We've been over this. Um but that is my best. I lawyers read a lot of stuff. Did you just get like burned out with reading? Burning? Yes, Mike. I don't read. <laughs> I swore off reading after law school. It's not a joke. That's really happening. You have, uh, you're a man of conviction when, you, when it's your own. Um, that's uh, my my highlight. My, my, best, my best when we get to best in spoilers is going to be playing off that with, right. because of the family dynamic of these superheroes. I didn't know that was what he's concentrating on, but having known that now, it makes a ton of sense, and it also jumped off the screen. But my other production nugget is simply just to tell all you folks I'm going to have a lot of production nuggets throughout this episode <laughs> because I watched the DVD extras and oh, I had a two two disc DVD cl- uh, set there. I watched the whole second disc other than the the short films, which I probably should have watched, but there's short films on there because there's a Jack Jack short film. I may go home and watch that now because now I'm excited. But you have a 27 making uh, 27 minute making of featurette, which you can also find on YouTube. And then there are little vignettes that time up to 40 minutes and it's each you know production group production design right. and costume design story I music I think they're the same videos as on the Pixar website I'm not positive I, okay. I didn't have the DVD to my disposal but they have those little movies on the Pixar website as well so many pearls yeah. of wisdom in there I loved it I loved every second of it so Mike you got uh, some specs here yeah let's talk about specs for The Incredibles again we're talking about just The Incredibles 1 if you're interested in the specs for The Incredibles 2 you can go back and listen to our Incredibles 2 Oscar Sprint profile from 2018 uh, The Incredibles Incredibles written and directed by Brad Bird, who had a history with The Simpsons and the animated film The Iron Giant, like we said, before coming over and into the Pixar fold here. This movie debuted October 27th, 2004 at the BFI Festival in London. It went on to have its U.S. debut a couple days later, November 5th, 2004. A 115-minute runtime on a PG rating. We're not in G territory anymore. Nice. Which is... One of the first things I noticed as well, because like we're dealing with bullets and guns and really adult themes throughout this movie. And death. Yeah. <laughs> so and we're not death. G-rating country, yes. country anymore. Uh, music was done by Michael Giacchino, who apparently J.J. Abrams picked up for Alias after hearing his work that he did on soundtracks for video games. So follow your dreams, children. It could lead you to open doors. That is cool. <laughs> uh, editing was done by Stephen Schaefer. Cinematography by Andrew Jimenez, Patrick Lynn, and Janet LaCroix. This is Pixar's sixth film like I mentioned, but the first to have a single writer credited to the screenplay and story as this had developed into a sort of passion project of birds since the early 90s. I told you about all this in the Pixar company history. Uh, there was a ton of pressure on this film to do well, which it did. An 8.0 IMDb rating on nearly 600,000 reviews and ratings. That's a good sign. A 97% certified fresh rotten tomato rating Big on 241 number. critic reviews, only 7 of those 241s being rotten. Surprisingly though for those numbers, 75% audience score want to guess how many uh user ratings went into that audience score mike million uh okay close is that your guess that's my guess 32 million what <laughs> 32 over 32 million reviews in the audience score but wow. it is a 75 on rotten tomatoes and a 90 meta rating much of a critical success though as this film was it was arguably even more of a financially successful film incredibles had a budget of 92 million which is actually a step down from the budgets of the earliest pixar films in the 110 115 million range but still quite substantial obviously and they made their money back in spades to the tune of a 633 million dollar worldwide box office 261 of that 633 coming domestically including a 70 million dollar opening weekend which again sounds like pennies now because we had a 1.2 billion dollar opening weekend with endgame but 70 million is good for any movie definitely (laughs) yeah it was good for the fifth highest opening weekend of 2004 and fifth is also where the movie would finish in terms of highest grossing movies of 2004 domestically not too shabby however pixar would once again fall victim to dreamworks big green ogre as Shrek 2 kept the Incredibles from being the highest 
highest grossing PG film of the year and the highest worldwide grossing film of 2004 as well. Both of those went to Shrek 2, making nearly a billion dollars on its way. Shrek 2 was good. <laughs> well, <laughs> Shrek 1 was good. Shrek 2 was good. The They're Incredibles good. would have the last laugh, though. Don't worry. Redemption would finally come in terms of Oscars for Pixar over Shrek as it was The Incredibles who left the stage that night with two golden statues for best sound editing and best animated film, vanquishing Shrek back to his swamp. I'm still fixated on the amount of Rotten Tomato reviews. 32 audience, million. 32 That's not bad, million, huh? And then 600K IMDb. 600,000 IMDb, yeah. People got out there to, to, for whatever reason, whatever it motivates someone to go to an internet website and rank a movie, rotten this tomatoes, movie had it. <laughs> and Rotten Tomatoes is doing it right. We've got to take a page out of their book somehow. When we start our own website, <laughs> which is never coming but also coming soon. 20 question mark, question mark. Yes. <laughs> Mike, the plot premise reads... A family of undercover superheroes, while trying to live the quiet suburban life, are forced into action to save the world. So we have the mundane, and we have the fantastic yeah, in goes, that premise. goes in line with that idea, sure. Uh, okay, do you remember your expectations? The, when was the first time you saw Incredibles 1? Let's I start there. I saw with my family okay. at the, you know, the Trumbull Movie Theater. Back I in think. 2004 Back when it debuted? 2004. I probably was during this. When did you say the premiere was? 04, November of 04, early November of 04. Oh, I might have seen this with uh, friends in college, actually. Okay. Yeah, I, pr- I probably did. I think this was my first time seeing it. I lie I when I you ask me questions. I don't listen anyway. You could but say I remember anything. seeing this with my family. I bet you I came home for Christmas break and I saw it with my family. It's a large bacon, egg, and cheese. What? Yeah. So you say you, say you saw, I saw this it with 04 is the point. But I, I think I might have saw it with my friends too. I, I didn't mean to get in like a therapy session with you. So you've seen this movie in 04. Mike, my memories... <laughs> Are with my family, but I'm not supposed to be. My life's a lie. I'm supposed to be in college in 04. I did not see this movie when it came out. I haven't seen this movie. I've seen Incredibles 2 because of my niece, and it's available on Netflix a billion times, but I have not seen The Incredibles 1 until this watching. No, really? Yeah, this was my first experience. Surprise. I did not expect the adult themes that we got in this movie. This movie is about adults, and it's for adults. (laughs) Yes. And essentially, that's the story. It's about a midlife crisis. And it's not really the same for Incredibles 2, right? This seemed like the more grown up of the two movies. Absolutely correct, and I can't wait to dive into it in uh, in, in spoilers. But you're a hundred percent right. It's what shocked me on the rewatch too, because I don't necessarily right. think I, I I registered all that. Yeah, you're not thinking of that when you're younger. Yeah. At the time, though, we're kind of wowed and dazzled by the effects, and we're wowed and dazzled by the fact that it's a superhero family. We're not realizing that it's about a dad's midlife crisis and a mom's <laughs> crisis of uh, profession versus, you know, uh, there's like a constitutional and... argument that yes. this movie lays out, which <laughs> is amazing. And then there's that as, as the backdrop <laughs> for the beginning of the movie, which pays off yeah. in Incredibles too. Yeah, it does. So yeah. I, I really like like that. Uh, but bottom line is. I didn't expect kind of polished storytelling in this movie. I didn't remember that this is both one of those globe-hopping spy action-adventure stories, but at the same time, it's also a focused superhero origin film. And they this movie manages to be both of those structurally, and I'm, I'm really excited about that looking back at it again now. Was it structure too rigid, do you think? Well, number one is they very they hone down the structure. Yep, that's something agree. Pixar does, and that's something Brad Bird does. Yeah, you know, if you watch uh, no how, how he handles it, so, and Pixar requires that, animation requires it because of the you know the time consuming nature and the the fact that you can't leave a lot on the cutting room floor. Is it too tight? Well, Maybe. The, the second one has more fun. Right, and that's way. the reason I ask. I felt myself much more emotionally invested in two than this one at all. I don't have that like gushy feeling through any scene of this one, really. I was like, this is a great movie, A to B. Yeah, yeah. And it looks spectacular, especially for a 2004 film. But I just did, as far as like the, oh gosh, you're playing with my heart, like we've had with every single Pixar movie we've done yet. Right. This is, well, you think about the basis for the genre. James Bond. Right. It's a good point. License to yep. Kill. It's basically an action movie. Good guys, bad guys, 
I shoot you before you shoot me. I mean, because it's based on, you know, the genre comes from West uh, Western in, in mm-hmm. a way. So it's about gunfighters and it's the pugilist genre. It's based in that. You you know this story because you watch it every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday on wrestling. That's right. Correct? <laughs> so, I mean, that's the basis you forgot for the two days. <laughs> that's the basis of the story, you know, essentially. It's about the showdown. Right. And th- that's how you structure the, the film. James Bond being the most notorious example, there's not a lot of emotion there. And, you know, this is before the new Bonds. So Brad Bird is kind of basing this on that genre. And, and it was purposeful. He, a, did, he did went out of his way to, to make sure it was known that he was basing this off the old spy movies, the old spy shows. Right. So that's the, the idea, that's the pacing, the aesthetic, and the mood he wanted. The he stakes, conveyed it. The stakes are high, but the characters are not all that vulnerable, are they? Because they're superhero characters. That's another good point. And yeah. they're having fun discovering their powers. And are we ever really fearing for their lives, necessarily? We They, they do a great job making them the underdogs, but what are the stakes? So... That's that's way too much information for non spoilers. Yeah, it's sorry giving about you a that. lot of feel. <laughs> it's giving you a lot of feel. That's I guess those are our script thoughts. But let's get into production values because some of these are fun. Like the retro future production design is is wacky. You have basically what a baby boomer would want as their immediate future in their greatest delusion, right? That's one of the quotes, I think it was on Wikipedia, a smarter person would have written it down for research purposes, but he said that he basically wanted to display the future that people thought they were going to get during that time of the 60s and 70s and as as the backdrop for I, this. I actually wrote that down. I, Did you? Why I wrote it down in script thoughts, I don't know. And the quote is this from Brad Bird. This film is set in a sort of alternative universe mid-60s world. Yeah. It's meant to evoke the futurism of that age, but in a timeless way. Which he accomplished, I would say, with flying colors. Because it kind of does give off that retro chic aesthetic every time you look at it and it's fascinating because in the production design vignette they talked about how they went too jetsony they went too futuristic in the first uh iterations of the story and of the storyboards and they're like this is not believable we got to make it familiar to people of the 60s generation who grew up there who whatever and grew up in the 70s and their parents still had 60s yeah you almost wonder if this was meant for kids at all you it's know what fascinating. I mean? This is like the biggest leap right. of just just doubling down on the adult. I mean, we have, yeah, we have story, we have this movie. company that did stories about toys coming to life, story about a school of fish getting lost, you know. Yeah. And now we're talking about this James Bond inspired midlife crisis for the patriarch. <laughs> really, really out there stuff for a kids movie. Out there. Uh, in terms of the animation, Mike, uh, they made some innovations in this movie, and the biggest one was a surprise to me. They said a year before this movie came out that long hair was quote unquote theoretical. They could not figure out long hair. Yeah, they figured out fur, but uh-huh. long hair that actually moved with all the algorithms that was supposed to happen. They couldn't figure out how to layer it. They couldn't. It, it was hysterical to watch all the uh, behind funny. the scenes stuff because what the hair was doing it was just like doing you know, whatever electrocuted hair. <laughs> Everyone was Medusa. That's Everybody funny. was Medusa. They could not figure out long hair, and it was almost a panic mode a year away from the release. Oh shit! Well, they, there are some scenes where the hair is. Uh, it's all you see. Especially there are scenes where characters are in water, and you're only seeing the back of their heads. It's wet, soppy hair. So yeah. Violet had long hair. They wanted it. It was essential for her character arc that they wanted sure. it there. And then they wanted to make it wet, and they had to figure out all this. So a lot of the technology was dealing with that. The other major technological innovation was the fact that okay, you had the ants and duplication of all the ants, mm-hmm. and you wanted to start with like a universal ant, and then just come up with all the uh, different little ticks and personality traits and you know, make that a, a you know, a, in ticks cartoon mean, form. Ticks mean different... Very details. Details, yeah, right. not, not so, other insects. Not other, yeah, another... <laughs> you don't need actual ticks stuck to... The ticks are so gross. Yeah, I didn't mean to conjure that up. But bottom line is you had uh, a universal man be at the center of this, and from the underminer to every single person, they basically used that as like a model that they would then sculpt from the Universal Man model, every single character in the movie. This is a Steve Jobs company, through and through. Because Steve Jobs, the biggest joke about him was what? Bill Burr, I think, had it, where he was like, 
you know, uh, I want something that plays all my music in this little box. Can you make that, please? And so this is like the exact same idea. It's like, uh, I want a movie with uh, all these humans that can look like this and differentiate themselves. Just uh, go do that. Make that technology make that for me. a program. Yeah. <laughs> right. It comes from the Universal Man paradigm. And then they, they're able to extrapolate it. I mean, obviously, they took it and they were able to animate and you know, make it a character for the principal characters or the main cast. And that's something that was fascinating to me. Brad Bird says if you're an anima- if you're an animation, then basically what you want to do is you want to make a caricature of of every uh, character that you have because you're emphasizing the essence of the character in visual format and it, that's what they do. I mean, Edna Mode is this tiny little pipsqueak with the biggest personality it's in the great, world. Yeah. Mr. Incredible has the torso basically the shoulders of a silverback gorilla <laughs> and the tiny legs. You know, he's just one of those. And it's just it's really funny, but they didn't want to go for realism, and they could have, because Toy Story 2, they went for realism right. with the Al character, the toy collector, mm-hmm. and many close-ups. They could have gone for realism, but Brad Bird was just stringent on the fact that we got to make this look cartoony, we got to make these characters sell the characters to the audience. You had to give the kids something to go for, right? <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> this isn't a kid's movie, so you might as well give, make them at least look cartoony. Yeah, otherwise it is... It's a Richard Linklater draw <laughs> right. movie. <laughs> Paint over the, uh, yeah, and Woody Harrelson. Right. You could have just made Woody Harrelson. I mean, you were a couple screens away from having this being a PG-13, for Christ's sake. Absolutely. So I thought that was fascinating when they talked about it. But in terms of the character design, Frozone is a figure skater build. Elastigirl wears mom jeans and has all the curves she ought to have. Elastigirl has become like a sex symbol for thickness online now. She's great. (laughs) Dash has a hairdo that's aerodynamic. Violet hides her face with that long hair. So it's genius. The production, uh, the character design for each one of these characters uh, in the writing of it. And unlike Toy Story 2, more like Boo from Monsters, Inc. You have basically characters that resemble the Incredible Hulk more than they resemble, you know, a real-life person. Which, again, I think was... You had to. You, you, you had to... Wherever you could give this to be more cartoonish and more Disney and more family-friendly, you had to. Finally, you know, one more note on Edna Mode. You know, Brad Bird voiced that character, and he based it, Mike, on his one and only encounter with Bette Midler. He said <laughs> he, ra- he run, ran into her at a party a Hollywood party, and she is this tiny little person, and yet in the room, she is the biggest personality in the world, and the most confident personality in the world, and he said he wanted someone who could just floor superheroes who are used to being totally confident. That was Edna Mode's job, as, as, as they're basically, not conscience, but someone who could tell them off and tell them what they need in their suits. Yeah. She is that. She's like the the North Star of this whole enterprise here. Yeah, I mean, you could follow the trajectory and the arcs of their characters based on their suits, which I thought was fascinating. So, we have the best Fantastic Four movie ever made. (laughs) It really is, which is a problem for (laughs) Marvel and Fox right now, yeah. Why, now that Marvel is owned by Disney and Pixar is owned by Disney, Mike... I think the move is let's get Brad Bird in charge of Fantastic Four. That's been the the, the rallying call that we had since we reviewed Incredibles 2. Yeah. You know, why not turn that over to him, see what he can do? Lord knows he can't get make it worse, right? Can anybody? And no offense to anyone that had their hands on it, but the No offense to them because well, it was shit. <laughs> well, Fox reportedly may have had more to do with that Ugh, than uh it was bad. than any auteurs did. But yeah, I, I don't see a problem with it. I, I don't know if it's going to happen, right? right. I, I don't think there's he's any reason to gonna, try to revive that franchise once more right now. He's going to do what he wants to do, yeah. Brad Bird. So if he wants to do Star Wars, if he's if he's in for that, then he'll want to do Star Wars if he's got another Incredibles 3 or Pixar. All he's done is hits lately, too. I mean, he's got the two Incredibles movies. He's got that Mission Impossible, which made a lot of money. Yeah. 1906 is the next uh, movie on his IMDb, so we'll have to get you a little snippet on what that is. Mike, Oscar Lenz, you already hit it at the top of the show. I just think it's notable to point out we have this movie breaking through its sound editing and if you watch those featurettes 
I totally agree with this because you basically have people doing the pots and pans thing, doing <laughs> crumpling up paper, taking little baby shoes and pitter pattering yeah. on the floor for uh, dashes, uh, you know, running style because he hits his feet so fast. You have these just performers who are just so talented, so ingenious, and they are giving you the sound effects for for this film. And the sound coordinator, the guy in charge of it all, is like. The sound effects have to be good, but if they're too good, it'll take you out of the story. So I'm walking this tightrope. I love people like that. It was brilliant. It was just brilliant. Just diving inside their own heads. It was a pearl of wisdom there. And then this movie also gets nominated for Best Original Screenplay and then Sound Mixing. So it breaks through in multiple technical categories, and it's in the Big Six now, or our Big Seven, Big Six, with Original Screenplay, which I think was warranted because it, it is a very tight script. Losing out to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, probably fair as far as original screenplay goes hotel rwanda the aviator vera drake were the other nominees for original screenplay that year uh sound mixing it lost out to ray which won again probably fair probably fair but creating the sound effects which is editing somehow that one that's a good that's a good win yeah which brings us back to our original point rename those categories because we're tired of having to look them up because we are dumb. I have to look them up every single time, Michael, and we're an Oscars pod, and I've looked them up like a dozen times yeah. now, but we could, we need to dance. We're to a lot of yeah. non-spoiler thoughts. Let's, uh, let's, let's spoil some stuff here. Spoilers ahead! Honey! What? Where's my super suit? What? Where is my super suit? Uh, This is a spoiler warning. This is the spoiler section for the Mike, Mike, and Oscar Pixar series rewatch of The Incredibles, uh, both one and two, but mostly just one. If you've not joined us before for a Pixar series rewatch, this is the spoiler section. If you don't want to hear the spoilers that we have in store, this is a good place for you to stop, hit pause, go watch the movie, come back. We'll be waiting for you when you get here. If you've seen the movie already, if you're interested to hear our thoughts, or if you've just been hyped up so much by the first half of our non-spoilers section that you can't wait to hear what our input is on the spoilers, this is where you want to be. It's all spoilers all the time from here on out. The Pixar series rewatch of The Incredibles 1 and 2 brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar, uh, but ma- mostly just The Incredibles 1, I think is the official title of this. Yeah. Mike, let's start the spoiler section like we have been with these official Pixar rules of screenwriting success. Yeah, so rule number five, we've gone through one through four in our first three pods. It's very confusing, but here it is. Rule number five is simplify, period, focus, combine characters, hop over detours. You'll feel like you're losing valuable stuff, but it sets you free so this is about economy this is about structure this is about the writing process and brad bird talked a lot about this uh why he has such a long build-up and a long space between films is he lives by this motto and, and it's fascinating that this happens to be the rule that we're discussing when we're discussing Brad Bird, who took how many years right. to get the Incredibles two story, you know, out of his mind and just and into uh, you know, onto the page for for these guys to a- actually animate. It seems so paradoxical because you're talking about simplifying in a movie where you need to establish characters have unrealistic powers, but yet in a realistic ground the whole movie in a realistic setting. But you think about the beach right the the island the volcanic island it's very like elemental sure. right it's not you don't have a lot of clutter there it's basically you have a bad monster robot you have an evil mastermind behind it all but when he's fighting their monster robot it's that's what he's doing yeah and, and it's it's just almost like focused every part of it is focused and it's very sequential and that's where i fall back on to what i said in the non-spoiler section i don't think there's a lot of room for emotional investment yeah i don't think that's necessarily a shortcoming either i this is a very streamlined a to b movie mm-hmm. which in one way is great i mean it, ma- it makes the the seamless to watch it but brad bird's not going to do a great job with like easter eggs and it's not going to do like avengers endgame when we see a shot of all the avengers in one shot right they're all doing little things for your 50th viewing and incredibles you just you just need the through line right like you'll notice something in the animation but you'll not you're not going to notice 
all those little details like in Roma where you're looking at Alfonso Caron's favorite toy that he talks about on the, <laughs> you know, the commentary in the top of the shelf in the corner of the frame. You don't yeah, need I, to know. I think if we're going to have a rule about Simplify, it could not be better applied to a guy like Brad Bird. Yeah, and it makes sense because, you know, Lasseter went into this, hiring this guy, finally outsourcing a, a, toy, a, a Pixar property or just hiring him to do his movie because he knew he was kindred spirits because he knew this was his right. process. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. Mike rule number six is what is your character good at? What is your character comfortable with? Question mark, throw the polar opposite at <laughs> them, challenge them. And then how do they deal? So, so that's basically the plot of this movie. Yeah. Each, <laughs> I'm going to go through each of these characters. Uh, they get opposition that encapsulates who they are. It's much like Sam Neill at the beginning of Jurassic Park. Okay. Sam Neill at the beginning of Jurassic Park is basically saying, I don't want kids. I can't deal with kids. <laughs> Remember the first time he's dealing with that one kid? He yes. shows him the Velociraptor thing, and he freaks the kid out and scars the kid for life. We That's Sam Neill at the beginning of the movie. So, of course, he has to be the protector of two children lost in a colossal, you know, dinosaurs run amok Naturally. film and right. protect these kids from real dinosaurs. It's kind of the same way here. You have Violet, who's a teenager who doesn't want to get out of her shell and who keeps her hair over Literally her face, doesn't want to be seen. Who has force fields. Mm-hmm. And she has to learn how to, you know, take the hair back and be... Find herself, center, yeah. Find be herself. comfortable in her own skin. Elastigirl cannot just remain a mom in this movie. She has to become the pro that she always was, again, to save her family. Isn't yeah. that ironic? It's her arc for two movies in two different ways. And she, she's arguing against the ethics of the laws that she must abide by versus what's right. Yeah. Yes. Dash has to hone his speed. He does, The one kid who doesn't want to slow down. Frenetic energy. <laughs> he has to slow down and hone and harness his speed to control it. Frozone goes from enabling friend kind of thing but basically he's hiding his gifts too and his family's not supporting it and in that b storyline kind of encapsulates what all these characters are having to do they they gotta let their light shine they gotta let their gifts i can't believe i'm quoting song lyrics here (laughs) they they gotta be superheroes just let your love flow (laughs) (laughs) mr incredible is the most obvious example because at the beginning of the movie what does he not want to do the worst he doesn't want to be a working stiff and he has to be a Which he has to be, yeah. And then in kind of, you know, the, the teamwork theme and the teamwork storyline, he wants to work alone. And he gets married. Then he has to have a family of superheroes. His main weakness, on the other hand, is his routine, right? He's got a routine of doing things. And he's an improviser. But at the same time, he's got to fight a robot he's that the, learns. Yeah, he's the most personified of this rule. He's the most yeah, on the nose of this He's got the most dimensions yeah. at the same time, though, because he's resistant to his fans at the beginning. And what comes back to haunt him? His, his biggest fan. <laughs> his biggest fan becomes a supervillain that goes after him in a vendetta. And it's, I just think that's brilliant. It's cl- it's super clever. It's super smart. And, uh, you know, they sound like some of these rules we talk about, they seem like so passe almost or so obvious. But when you really get down and parse through what you're right, what you have on the page versus what you end up with on the screen, there's so much restraint that you could tell goes into something like this. I imagine this process, especially having bird that worked on it for a decade plus by the time it hit the screen. Sure. He must've had what cut down two thirds of the fucking script that it must've freaked. I'm sorry. I'm trying not to swear on these Pixar <laughs> shows, but he must've cut down on so much of the script as it originally was to try and get to, to get to where we, got to to follow just these simple rules yeah i mean it boils down to the fact that he's a mentor hero the father mr incredible i think they do a better job of the parents being mentor heroes in the second movie because you have a whole act in that second movie based on the kids becoming heroes in their own right this movie kind of gives you a little bit of that but the central relationship between the villain and the hero is that if he was a mentor to that youngster back then the right way it, he wouldn't have created a monster. He could have saved him. Yeah. No, it, that's a fine point. Yeah, that certainly a is a good point. And again, I, I will go back to, since we're going to go talking about heartbreaks and the emotional investment now, I'll go back to, I think, being so simplified, maybe overly so, to get the story on the forefront here, I didn't have heartbreak moments here. I don't really either. I feel at times, I, I think there's there's a powerful feminist statement at the, at the very beginning. So watching Elastigirl kind of 
take a step back is kind of painful a little bit. And watching her suffer with the, the whole the fact that she misconstrues the plot kind of sucks for a while. It's also sad to realize that Syndrome's killing all of his friends, his old friends. And that reminds me, because basically, Mike, what is this a metaphor for? This is a metaphor for adulthood. We used to be young and hip and awesome and muscular, and now we're old and fat. My dude, like that, that right there is sadder than I have felt watching this movie. So <laughs> You're absolutely right. The implications... Yeah. Of where how cool and awesome we used to be yeah. and how old and fat and not awesome we are now and that everybody around us is dying and life <laughs> is winning. So and we're losing. Thanks, so th- Dave Gettleman. This is what's happening in this film via metaphor, and that made me sad. Uh, <laughs> but I think the last thing was the kids have to hide their gifts and the kids are kind of acting out because of it. It's played for gags with the teacher, which is very funny, with Dash. Yes, I agree. But at the same time, with the young girl, she makes you feel a little something because she's very shy. I wish there was more of that because we only really had, you know, yes, the only reason we know Violet is an emo teen is because she wears her hair down in front of herself and she's presented that way. We only really have the one scene of interacting with the the guy she likes. Yeah, but Turtleneck turns and wants to give her a look and she goes invisible. Right. And that's kind of sad. It is. I agree. I just wish we had more of that. I'm stretching, honestly. Right. That's that's what I mean. But that's not to say there's not a lot I didn't like. I liked plenty about this movie. The family dynamic thing that you talked about in non-spoilers, that Brad Bird wanted to put at the forefront, I thought it was spectacular yeah. how we have an everyday argument about what you know, what should our kids be doing, what can we be letting our kids do, are, the subtext of which being, are we being good parents, and whose way of raising children is more... Correct. Uh, I guess impactful <laughs> or correct, yeah, to, to, to raise these kids... But while we're doing that, we're fight. We're using our superpowers, and Miss Elastigirl's getting taller and taller, and shutting doors with her huge arms. Mister Incredible's walking around all powerful, and they have powers that represent who they are. Right. And Brad Bird talked about this a million times. Yes. Elastigirl is like a mom trying to do, do ten a billion things different at things, once yep. and balance everything. The father is just the strong one, the provider, the big he's, shoulders. He's the stereotypical patriarch. Yeah. yeah, he wants to t- attack things head on, and the son is just a mile a minute. All of frenetic energy and then she has force fields she has you know and then the baby of course is unlimited potential (laughs) which is one of the greatest payoffs in a while with jack jack at the end of this mike so in terms of happiness that's my number one right there to have the finale rest in jack jack is like one of my favorite things of all time that's the closest i got to like a heartwarming moment too i loved it number one jack jack is adorable the whole film and this whole family comes together and it reminded me at the end of toy story 2 in terms of the structural aspect of it it's like a tack on i forget what they call it but bottom line is you have at the end of toy story 1 i'm sorry you have the dog we have a dog now (laughs) <laughs> no in this movie it's jack jack has powers right. now and jack jack has all these powers oh my god can you wait for the sequel we're gonna make you wait 14 years yeah <laughs> decade and a half so that was my favorite thing how, how about you what else you like? my favorite was really the interaction of the family uh there's some visuals that are just over the top spectacular as well when mr incredible is being chased through the jungle by syndrome i syndrome love that sequence overlooking the waterfall i thought it looked Unbelievable, and then when the family gets there, yeah, just the innovations with the mom boat and yeah. the kid being the speeder feet, and and I really thought it looked great when the mom and the kids were wet. I thought the hair, I, I sure. actually noticed that the reflection on the water looked so realistic. I thought the hair acted realistic. So to hear that they thought there were problems is kind of you know how perfect do you want this to look right. to me? <laughs> but I, I really thought there's really some stunning visuals, and again you have to remember. Yes, we all just saw Endgame, right? And mm-hmm. we saw the fullest capabilities of where vid- graphic effects and video effects are to this day we right did. now. This movie holds up, and this is 15 years away from Endgame, right? Like, you could play it at that time right now, and it looks just as incredible. Well, the Fun fact intended. is, it's, it's, they're caricatures. They're not going for realism, so you can kind of make cartoons play look with good at any space, I mean, Snow yeah. White still looks, it has its own unique look because that's the character, you know, it's about the character. It's not about the uh, the realism. And that's why abstract art is better than 
other art than goes better than right this is i learned wow. my art history class. wow really really went in a direction aesthetics, i am not prepared for aesthetics anyway it just dawned on me right then and there mike the one other i had a couple of other big moments of happiness i'll tell you another thing fuck michelangelo <laughs> the, that's correct the, the, mike the fact that evil monologuing is a weakness for the villain, it just makes me really happy. Anytime a movie can like undercut its own genre and point out the tropes within itself in a genuine way like that, when you it's got not me forced, monologuing. Yeah. And then the, the capes, yes, the capes, yes. hilarious murder. How many superheroes <laughs> in this movie, including the main villain? At First the of end? all, everything about the Edna character. I want a movie of her when she's got Elastigirl's dirty tissues and putting them like shoveling them into her garbage can. Yeah. But the garbage can is an incinerator right in the middle of the kitchen. <laughs> You just see the flames? I laughed so hard at that. Everything about her is just excess to the 11. Uh, that was my other major <laughs> point of happiness, best scene. I mean, everything with Edna here is hilarious. Yes. And she's hilarious in this movie and then playing with Jack-Jack in the next movie. My favorite scenes of that movie, Incredibles 2, is her her sequence with Jack-Jack. But I just love it because you got, like, she's the guy in the chair, right? She's the girl in the chair. Oh, yeah. And the fact that she is able to boss around these superheroes is hysterical with her height and her weight and her voice. <laughs> and Brad Bird worked very hard to get that voice right. It's very funny. Uh, but again, it means a lot for the arcs of the story because those suits, I mean, it's right there in the suit, what these characters yeah. are supposed to do. And right there in her quote-unquote Q role to outfit James Bond or who's, who's is it Q? Q? Yeah, Q's the one that comes up with the... Uh, all the gadgets? Yeah, the gadgets. All right, yeah. so she's that role for this. And it's, it's just playing. And because Mike and I are who we are, we had to take a quick break and make sure we were right about not misnaming James Bond characters. But yes, it is Q. It is Q. <laughs> Somehow I remembered that. I, <laughs> but I second-guessed it. Yeah, so Edna's the Q character, done to 11 but inverted and somehow made hilarious. Yes, uh, great job with her character. Probably the most memorable one, if not Jack-Jack from this movie. All right, let's talk about some downsides, Mike, before we get out of here. Anything that, that gave you pause or trouble? Okay, so this is a downside with a caveat because you have a group of guys making this movie and there's females on the crew, but this is obviously a male gaze movie. You're making feminist statements from the male gaze, sure. but this is a Mr. Incredible-centric film. Even in the next movie... It's not from the female perspective, even though they do their best, right? And that was one of our little hang-ups with the second They at movie. least make her the hero in the second one, but, but yeah. it's all the, the concentration is on the are from right. the male point of right. from the dad's point of view. Like, he is just nasty just in terms of the arguments yep. in the middle of the, that movie. That was just one off note for me in Incredibles 2. This movie, you have a lot of these, you know... Dad will recognize this about mom moments, and that's fun. And I just think you're, they're owning the POV, which is something that Paul Thomas Anderson does. It's not something that Steven Spielberg has done lately. Like, Steven Spielberg makes you think that he makes a movie about Meryl Streep in the protagonist role. Like, he gets women more than anybody. <laughs> Like this is I'm, I'm jumping on a female empowerment bandwagon almost, which gets me aggravated. Yeah. No, you're this right. This movie at least owns it the same way Paul Thomas Anderson's like I'm gonna all right, I'm gonna make this from male perspective of the female, which we ask for a and lot. That's fine. Yeah, we ask for that a lot. Don't act like you know what's going on inside a woman's head if you're not going to go the extra mile and hire them to be in the writers' rooms. Exactly. You know, and we and we also advocate all the time. Every production should have a woman's POV in it. But that's the thing. On second thought, like, how about we get Incredibles 3 from a female director right. or, or an Incredibles type movie from a female director? Because I'd be curious to see, because I didn't, don't think it worked great in either film. No, Elast I think that's a great Elastigirl's point. perspective. Yeah. Both films are taken from, and they own it. So it's a, that's the caveat. It's taken from Mr. Incredibles POV, it's taken from the guy said. Uh, I think that's a fantastic point, and I think you're right on, and I, I do agree that. There's no reason that we shouldn't, especially if you're going to do the sequel a decade and a half later in the era of Time's Up and Me Too, where the where's the female input? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, my worst scenes, the ones that bothered me most just because I didn't expect it. I was expect we're on the heels okay. of Toy Story. We're on the heels of all these Pixar friendly kid movies. The first 11 minutes of this movie, we are introduced to constitutional issues, suicide, yep. death, gun violence, 
politics and legislature, as well as the legal system. All done via the guise of a mockumentary. This is a movie for kids? <laughs> this is what we're... Ta- like, okay, I cannot imagine taking my five-year-old nephew and True. having him sit down and watch this when we see... The, one of the first episodes, first things on screen we see is a real bad guy firing a gun <laughs> at the protagonist. Well, the Iron Giant was pretty heavy, too. I mean, you right, that's why. true. It didn't play with kids as an animated film, right. but the critics gushed over it, and yeah, I mean, it makes sense. But you make a great point, because Iron Giant, I don't think, was a kid's movie, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. Pixar is not in the business, especially in 2004, of making social commentary movies, not for kids, They're but for the kids. the business of making kids right. movies that adults also <laughs> <Right>. like. <laughs> this was an adult movie. Movie. This is a movie for the parents that they will take their kids to. Right. And then we, I mean, corporate greed and fiduciary responsibility is worked in. Workplace assault and violence is worked in. It. True. It's just like, Jesus Christ, man. True. All these heavy, heavy and, themes. And Big Brother fixes it yeah. all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what are we doing here? Like, he probably should go to jail for choking his <laughs> jerk boss but he does choke and to- throws jerk boss through multiple walls. And part of the reason that ma- like I know we're tongue in cheek about it but part of the reason it matters is because they did such a good job like we keep saying of streamlining everything keeping everything grounded in real real, as much reality I guess as you can when dealing with superheroes sure. that like you see the co-workers walking by as their boss is thrown through a wall and they all look panicked and worried and stuff. it's like okay but it's also Brad Bird's view of corporate yes. reality where they're just trying to screw you over like little old ladies they're trying to not cover a claim how do we help the place. insurance company not the uh, yeah. patrons yes. my god uh, so that's v- dark extremely heavy and extremely dark that's for dark. a quote unquote kids movie uh, surprise they got a PG out of it but who am I I'm not part of the MPAA so. and then the villain gets sucked into <laughs> Uh, you know, I a turbine. I was like, when I was watching Syndrome go fighting for his life, I'm like, how do they get out of this without showing a blood splatter? Because right. you just keep seeing a close up of Can his face, close up of the turbine. Jack Jack's <laughs> smiling face with like Tarantino <laughs> blood at the end. That's, that's what I was waiting for. I was like, good lord. But it's not something all that new for Pixar. You have the grasshopper, Hopper, mm-hmm. Kevin, played by Voldemort, getting eaten yeah, by baby that's a good birds, point. Ah, screaming for his life, and then now you have. You know, syndrome getting <laughs> with the cape that was foreshadowed earlier, with his, which is brilliant in terms of screenwriting. So, I I like it because I'm edgy like that. Right, I don't have a problem with it. We don't have children Good. that we're trying to rear. Exactly, we watch this for ourselves. <laughs> Daddy, what happened? To him? Right. What's death? <laughs> any final What's thoughts? Corporate <laughs> yeah. What's a fiduciary? Uh, do you have any final thoughts to wrap up here? I, I think uh, I think the second movie is much funnier. Yes, and it's it's able to handle more at once. Like you said, this is very linear. This is focused. This is Brad Bird coming, like kind of licking his wounds in a way, making sure he nails this one and just tells a great story. And then the next one, he's feeling himself a lot more after a lot Flexes more. Flexes his creativity a yeah, little more. And yeah, and he's able to. And plus, it's probably more collaborative and even though this one by every we we know he's an auteur here he gets the sole credit this is very collaborative yeah sure and, and, but he but he's the final say i guess the next one seems like there's a lot more going on i would agree with that uh i was not ready or expecting as heavy a movie as we got i almost feel like this was john lasseter like taking a couple looking at the scripts at different stages and being like why don't you give this a rewrite well, you know, Brad, why don't you punch that up a little bit? Hey, but it's I can make a kids movie. Think about the finale too, like going in the city with the the big the big ball, and you have the fan who's actually finally reliving his fandom, and he's the hero, and then his nightmare appears on screen. Like that's Those heavy too. Are, yeah, it's true. That's heavy too. Like the robot that he created to be smart is actually about to murder him, <laughs> rips off his thing, and then the whole family. Okay, God we, is literally in yeah. the machine in this case. Yeah, uh, <laughs> heavy. yeah, it's heavy, a, heavy stuff. I like. I loved it, but 
Yeah, little kid, I, I, little, I enjoyed little it too. I, I absolutely enjoyed it. It's just not a kids' movie. It's my only. It's where I land on it. <laughs> if they made this in real life, Brad Bird said, like he would want it to make this in real life. He wanted to make this a live action movie. That and, would be something. <clears throat> but he knew, like once it was animated, he was just going to go off and give them all these unique animated things that I could never film. Right. Like with all elastic, all the powers going sure. wild. So that that was the most fun thing for him and making it a kids' movie, and that's probably why it sells as a kids' movie. <laughs> but on the other hand, the thing are very adult. I'll yeah. tell you what, this one ain't on Netflix under the kids section. You gotta buy this one. <laughs> uh, we want to know your thoughts. Is The Incredibles one of the movies during your formative years? Do you have any fond memories of it? Uh, do you have anything that we missed? You want to hear your highlights, shoutouts, comments, questions, concerns, all of that, you can reach out to us. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram. MM and Oscar on Twitter. Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We're available everywhere you hear podcasts. Tune in, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, etc., etc. Uh, we have our big... End game review, hopefully tomorrow. That'll be out for you, and we're yep. gonna have the final word with a special guest on all you need to know about End Game. Uh, some silliness and some seriousness all involved in that. So look on the look forward to that. Look out for that, uh, Mike. Words of wisdom. Let's wrap this up. Watch special features. Remember the days where we used to watch all the special features on the DVDs yeah. and the Blu-rays, and let's get back to that. I want to see a lot more making of this. Really took me back. So watch watch special featurettes on the making of movies and. It's just, it's a joy. And that, that was that was my biggest takeaway from this experience. I loved every second of, of watching the special features. You've had some good words of wisdom lately, buddy. That's a good one. I try. I actually have been writing You've them been down. Writing them That's down. Why. That's right. Yeah. I've been thinking <laughs> yeah. about them and writing them down. It's not like, I'm being surprised <gasps> every time we record. Wisdom? <laughs> Maybe I'll just say thank you. I, I don't know. <laughs> what, what do you want to say? <laughs> yeah, it's a literally pause. It's like, Mike, I got nothing. <laughs> What's wise? All right, guys. When reality sucks, uh, watch movies with us. Maybe just don't show this one to your kids. And we'll check you out next time. See ya.